Actually, if you're in the room, stay standing. If you're standing for just one second, we read a second ago, uh, Claudia read scripture in the last verse. It said this. I want to just kind of recalibrate us back to this verse. It says, Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. And then in some translations, there's a little note that says interlude or selah, and we're not 100% sure what that means in Hebrew, but a lot of people think it's maybe a a note for uh, the musical part of chanting or singing these psalms. A lot of people think it means stop, take a deep breath, and reflect. We see it a lot of times in the psalms. So I'm going to read that one more time. And when I get to the end, as, as I read it, just breathe this in, receive it. As I get to the end, just breathe it out. Take just a second to reflect. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him. For God is our refuge. You're safe. We're safe. He's got us. Amen. You can have a seat. It's a beautiful thing that God is our refuge. Uh, He's our fortress. He's our rock. Uh, We're in times that uh, continue to be, if we're honest, disappointing. Uh, A struggle for many of us for a whole slew of reasons. I don't think I have to go over them for you. Uh, We continue to to just kind of work through what our world looks like and uh, oftentimes wishing we were in a different spot. We were further ahead than we are. And I know for many of us, it's it's called struggles, and it's different for everybody, Uh, but we want to commit through this series, as we're talking about, uh, following Christ through crisis. What is it? What's different about those of us who follow Jesus when we come to a crisis, and not just an individual crisis, although we have those, and many of us have them, uh, but in in really a global crisis, and um, I think a a big task that we have is to stay encouraged. That a huge part of our battle is to stay encouraged. It's so easy to become discouraged and to give in to negativity. We get tired because it just takes so much of us um, to continue to change and and do the things that are required of us in a different kind of world and in a a difficult world many times. Uh, And so a lot of our task is to stay encouraged. And this week and next Sunday, that's a lot of what I want to talk about we're in the book of Revelation for just, just a few little passages, and it's a book that we could just we could go into, and you could spend years studying it. It's very complex and, and also deep and meaningful, uh, but we're going to be there today. And as we start, I want to ask you, if in the last couple of years you found yourself thinking any of the following things, things are never going to get better. And maybe the longer that we've had the challenges that we have had, You just think, I don't know if we're ever going to get over that. I don't know, like, are things ever going to improve? When will things turn around? Sometimes we take a couple of steps forward, then it feels like we take a couple of steps back, and we wonder, are things going to get better? Or maybe you've thought the world is getting worse and worse. That's just the way things are. The world is getting worse and worse, and things really aren't going to get better, and not just with a pandemic and all the things that go along with that, but it could be, again, personal challenges that you're going through. It could be climate change. Pick, pick your problem, but maybe what started to seep into your mind is the world is just getting worse and worse, and you might have come down this path to say that maybe this is the end. Maybe we're coming to the end. The end of what? I don't know. Maybe we're coming to the end of the world. 
And it can be very, very easy for us to get discouraged. And so what I want to do, again, this week and next week as we continue through this series, is hopefully bring you some encouragement because I think a book like Revelation filled with biblical prophecy, certainly there's some strong warnings, certainly there's some, some imagery that, that causes us to, to be almost scared and, and, and on the negative side. But I think the purpose of a book like Revelation and other biblical prophecies is actually to give us great hope. And that's what I want to talk about. How do we stay hopeful and how do we stay encouraged? How do we keep going when we're in crisis? And what does it mean for us to follow Jesus in the midst of a crisis that might be different from other ways of thinking or or other worldviews? Is there something that Jesus brings to the table? And I would suggest that it's everything to follow Jesus, crisis or no crisis, but certainly in a crisis. So Revelation, um, a big chunk of Revelation, uh, last week we started talking about, I just wanted you to know, we'll come back to this, um, really important is that we started out the first three chapters or so, especially chapters two and three, are these letters that are written to the churches. That's what the book of Revelation is. So today we're going to get into some of the metaphors, some of the symbolism, really this deep vision that John got, that he wrote down, and I want you to make sure you put it into that context, that everything that follows after the first three chapters are meant to deal with the issues in those first Three chapters. That's why we read one of those letters to one of the churches, some of the things they're dealing with, the struggle they're going through, and it was the call for them to put God back in the, the first place, their first love. Make God your priority. You worship him and nobody else. And, and as we go from there, all this vision that we get is written down to encourage those churches back in the first century, written to people in the, the latter part of the first century. And I want to talk about uh, a couple of assumptions that sometimes are very popular for reading the book of Revelation. And I will acknowledge at the outset, there's a lot of ways to read Revelation. There are a lot of different interpretations. Some are better than others. It can be a controversial book that people make certain interpretations and sometimes fight over. And it's not super easy to interpret. And so that makes it easy for people to disagree about what it's saying. But here's a couple of assumptions that I would actually challenge that we should probably be very careful of. And I'm going to show you why I read it a little bit differently. But these have been assumptions that are relatively new about the book of Revelation. By that, I mean in the last couple hundred years of interpretation in the Christian tradition. But here they are. Revelation, here's one assumption. It's primarily about the end of the world. And I'm going to talk to you today about why I I think um, that a, a good chunk of it is not actually about the end of the world. That doesn't mean there's nothing about the end of the world. And next week, I want to talk about that because it's so important for our hope. And the second one, which oftentimes goes to the first one, is that Revelation is is telling us about events of our present day. It's about us. And so sometimes people pick up the the book of Revelation and they go, oh, here's the end of the world and we're living in the end of the world. And so we interpret it kind of in that way and we try and look for what's happening around us, what's happening in the news, what's happening in the world. And then we match up, oh, this verse and that verse and and all that kind of stuff. And that's been, again, popular, but not for a long time. It's actually a relatively new way of interpreting uh, Revelation. Um, I want to go into the way that I read it, again, knowing that there's, there's people who would disagree with this, but what I think is a very, what I know is a very old interpretation of what we have uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, early uh, commentators or interpreters in the Christian tradition, like Eusebius and Clement of Alexandria, some of them who are just kind of a hundred years from when this was written, and uh, them saying, here's, as I read this, this is what this is referring to. Uh, we have some of that from history, um, and I think that's really important because 
because always in Scripture, whether it's a book like Revelation, which can be really tough, or another one, we always want to start with the context. Who was this written to and how did they interpret it? What did the author intend for those people? What are the circumstances that they're speaking into? And when we do that, we can ground the Scripture at least a little bit to the best that we can find some of those things about and put some of the pieces together and then try and draw out the principles for what does this mean for us rather than just assuming someone wrote this to us. Because the reality is, This wasn't written directly to us. We're reading, oftentimes when there's letters, we're reading one side of a conversation, uh, something that was written to somebody else in a different context, and uh, it doesn't mean there's nothing for us. There's so much for us, but we just need to realize that first we need to figure out what, what, what was it that was trying to be related to the original audience from the author? How did they understand it? How did the interpreters take it? And as, again, not that we can always do that perfectly, it's a difficult task, but as we can do that to the best of our ability, we start to realize, oh, here's the message and here's how we can start to think through those same principles in our time and for our struggles. So the early Christians... Revelation written uh, towards the end of the first century, what they were dealing with, remember a lot of Christianity came from uh, Judaism. Jesus was Jewish and most of the early followers were Jewish. That was their context and and their religious context. And then, of course, uh, quickly it spread to non-Jewish people. But what they were dealing with towards the end of the first century is that their temple was being sacked. Their city was being destroyed. The center of their religious life and their politics and all of that kind of stuff was being threatened. And a lot of the biblical prophecy, I would take where it talks about the end. Sometimes we assume that means the end of the world. I actually think is referring to the end of the world as they knew it. The end of the world in light of our temple and our city and much of how we practice our religious beliefs. And so keep that in mind as we read through this. And again, I'll make some comments and then we're going to try and figure out how this might apply to us today because our situation is very different. These are Christians who are under persecution, violent persecution at times, periodically, at the end of the first century. Obviously, like I said, uh, their, uh, their, their Jewish roots, the temple, the city was under siege. They were trying to deal with that, figure it out. How do we go on? How do we move on? How do we find hope? We know that's not our circumstance here uh, in 2022 in Canada. We have our struggles, but it's different. And so let's kind of mine out what some of their struggles are, some of the warnings and some of the encouragements, and then try and bring them into our own context. I want to read today from Revelation chapter 13, which I think is, a, 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 again, a section of Scripture that's oftentimes misunderstood. And I want to share with you how I interpret this and how I think uh, it bears on us. Revelation 13, verse 1 says, And I saw, so this is part of this vision that John is writing down. And what we're getting, a little bit more context, is a massive fight between good and evil. The forces of good, the forces of God, the kingdom, and the forces of evil that are against them. And we have, again, this, this imagery. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it makes your mind just kind of blow with, you know, picturing some of this kind of stuff. We're getting a spiritual insight that's behind the scenes, often unseen. Uh, if we're not looking for it, we're just seeing the physical things that are happening. And here's one of the parts or episodes of this story. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months." 
It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth and will worship it, everyone whose name was not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Okay, we have this beast. Sounds scary. Threatening, that's been given authority, that's wreaking havoc, uh, that's given authority from the dragon. The dragon, this, this symbol of evil or of the Satan, the accuser, uh, who has given the beast authority. What in the world are we talking about? We go back to the first verse, the beast arises out of the sea. In Revelation, the sea is often a metaphor for Gentile or non-Jewish nations. So somebody outside of the, the Jewish world. So we have uh, some kind of a beast coming out of the sea, that is, for, for the Jews or some of these early Jewish Christians, uh, some kind of threat that's coming from outside of their nation. And then we have this description of uh, ten horns and seven heads and all of these beasts that come. This is an illusion. These beasts are an illusion to another biblical prophetic book in the Old Testament of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where it describes a number of beasts. And in fact, all of these beasts are mentioned there, the leopard, the bear, and the lion. So you have a beast that incorporates all these different parts. Well, these were different beasts that were set out in this apocalyptic vision of Daniel back in his time, hundreds of years earlier. Now, we know what these beasts represent. Each one represents an empire, an empire that becomes a superpower in the world that takes over, and empires that war against the Jewish people some way conquer them, sometimes destroying their temple. Very much someone in the first century who's concerned with your Jewish temple would look back to these times in history and go, oh, we've been here before. We've been threatened by these empires, these superpowers who come in and claim that they can take over the entire world and they destroy our temple, our cities. They throw us into exile, which is for them like we're outside of God's presence, we're outside of God's will, we're outside of our homeland. It's like the worst thing that could happen. So here's what we find. The leopard which is actually, to our context, the most recent empire, represents the Greek empire. The Greeks who come in, Alexander the Greek and others, swoop in, they become the superpower of the world a few hundred years before the time of Jesus. Before that, it was the bear, it was the Medes and the Persians who were the superpower and took over. And before them were the Babylonians, represented by the lion. And so, hundreds of years later, Daniel talking about their situation, very similar. They're under this great stress and we recognize that throughout these times, we have these empires coming in, and they're waging war against us, and, and we're trying to figure it out, and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, in the book of Daniel, we get a list of these different empires represented metaphorically by these animals, these beasts, and then it says there will be another beast that will come, and then it starts talking about the time when the Messiah shows up, and during the time of the Messiah, there will be a time when another beast arises, Jesus the Messiah, was born in the first century. And if you remember, not so long ago in our Christmas readings, we, re we read every year that when Jesus was born, it was under the rule of Caesar Augustus, of the Roman Empire. And this is the fourth beast. This is the beast we're talking about in Revelation. So now the Messiah has come. Jesus is born. Jesus lives. He's born under Roman rule. Now the Romans have become the superpower of the world. They take over. They're violent. They are oppressive. They don't do much for people who are vulnerable or poor or weak or sick because they value things like wealth must be given to us by the gods. 
They value domination and power. Historically, we read this not in just Christian literature, but just in historical literature. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, they promised we're going to bring peace to the world. They believed that they were divinely initiated to be the ones to save the world. The Romans will do it. And how did they do it? Through violence, through domination, through asserting their power the way that they wanted to. Doesn't sound very peaceful at all. But here we have Revelation picking up on that which was put out in Daniel. And here's a list of empires that have come and swooped through and we're, we're looking for that next one and Messiah's going to... So the Messiah shows up. Who's in charge? It is the Romans. The beast is the empire of Rome. And by the end of the first century, represented by Caesar Nero. So Caesar Augustus is gone uh, and replaced and here comes Caesar Nero. We read a couple of other details and there's so much we could get into. But it says that um, this beast, uh, and some of these horns and heads, the heads represents um, the other uh, Caesars, right? From Julius Caesar on in history, uh, the different Caesars that come and take power. Horns uh, often are symbolic of leaders that come into play, so you can kind of match those up in history. It says in verse 5 that he, this beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, we read of historical context here um, that says uh, Caesar Nero uh, was... Uh, periodically, it wasn't all the time, but periodically persecuting Christians. And there was actually a, a time period where outside of Rome, Christians were persecuted. And some of the leaders of the Christian movement, like Peter and Paul, big shots were actually executed in those persecution. And we have historical sources that said, and that time period of that persecution lasted 42 months, three and a half years. And so here we have it, these allusions to what these early Christians are going to in a time in the first century uh, where they are, are struggling under Caesar Nero and the Roman Empire. We read that uh, the, this, this beast at one point, um, again, given authority from the dragon, symbolic of the Satan. So you have this evil source coming to him and he, he has... Um, a mortal wound or what seemed to be a mortal wound. And Caesar Nero actually at one point attempted to commit suicide. And there are legends around that and history around that uh, where he was wounded. Some people say he was wounded, but he didn't die. Some people said he was wounded and he died and he came back to life. And this becomes uh, almost legendary about who he is. And by the way, who does it remind you of when you think of someone who died and then came back to life? And this is a text, an anti-Christ text. Uh, Christ, you know, there's going to be a comparison that we're going to get to where we have the beast, which is the antithesis of the Christ. The Caesars, like Nero, uh, often took on titles. It's on their money. We have some of this, again, from artifacts and, and different things, different writings. And Caesars uh, might have taken some of the following uh, titles. And just think of uh, the blasphemous words that we read about. Titles of Caesar, Son of God, Lord, Savior of the world, King of Kings. Any of those sound familiar? Again, titles given to Jesus, and we have already starting set it up, being set up here, a contrast between Jesus, the Messiah, and Caesar, Nero, the leader of Rome, who represents the empire, who believes that the gods had given them the right to rule the world and put it all back together. The early Christians got into trouble not because of their beliefs about the afterlife, not because of, of some of their specific beliefs, but in large part because they would not pledge allegiance to Rome. They pledged allegiance to Jesus. 
Here's the beast. Here is the Roman emperor, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of God, the savior of the world. The gods have put him in place to bring the world all back to right. And the Christians just could not worship him, would not worship him. That's why they were persecuted. It wasn't, oh, you believe in God. Just about everybody in the ancient world believed in God or gods. So they believed Jesus was the savior of the world. And it was their allegiance to him over Caesar or the Roman Empire that got them into trouble. Read about that a little bit more if we continue. Then I saw another beast. Oh, a second beast. This is verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Now the sea we saw was representative of uh, Gentile nations. Here the earth is represented or the land represents the Jewish nation. And specifically we'll see some of the Jewish religious leaders. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So you're getting the contrast. It looked like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. The authority of the first beast, uh, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead." so that no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So the earth is symbolic of the Jewish people. So there's a first beast that comes from outside of the Jewish people. Now there's a second beast that rises up out of uh, the land of, of Israel or the, from the Jewish people. And who is this? Well, I think as I alluded to before, it's representative of those religious leaders who rather than proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, proclaim that Caesar is Lord. Can you think of a time that that happened? John chapter 19, when Jesus is being, has been arrested and there's this argument. Um, some people want him to be crucified, but they're trying to figure out who has the authority to crucify Jesus. And so you have uh, the Romans who are kind of in charge, but then you have the Jews uh, who have a certain amount of authority over their own people, but not all of it. And so there's back and forth between the leadership of the two and, and some of the Jewish leaders are trying to get him crucified and you have Pilate thrown in there and Pilate is not really sure about it and he's going back and forth and there's these conversations in John chapter 19, 15, when this is happening, Jesus is on trial. The religious leaders proclaim, these Jew, some of the Jewish religious leaders proclaim, in the middle of this argument where they're trying to get Jew, Jesus crucified, that we have no king but Caesar, rather than, so rather than pointing to Jesus, they point to Rome. And they actually make the case that, hey, listen, if you're going to go against the Romans, you're going to get flattened. We need to align ourselves with the Romans. We have no king but Caesar. And to the Christians, or those following Jesus at the time, to say, whoa, 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 there's this, this big faction. And so that continues. There's people who, uh, in the religious system, believe we need to continue to give uh, Caesar the number one priority. And so here we have this beast that is coming uh, out of the land, not just the sea, and, and now is uh, actually giving some authority, their authority, and pointing people towards allegiance with Rome. We see, I'll get back to this in a second, that there's the mark of the beast uh, given on the right hand or the forehead uh, that people take so that they can buy or sell, and that his number is 666. 
this, uh, I'm going to say this. I'm, I really don't want to say this because I think some of you are going to do the opposite of what I tell you to do. Don't go and Google this. I know some of you, as soon as I say that, you're going to go Google it. 666, what does that mean? There is a million conspiracy theories. It is a rabbit hole. You can go down, you can find people who say all kinds of different stuff. And I get it. You can read some of this stuff and it can be very convincing. You can get to a very dark place. And most of it is not good scholarship built on uh, good historical data. And so I want you to be careful with that. Some of us uh, have thought, oh, the mark of the beast. Maybe you've heard of that. The number 666. Maybe you've heard of that. Um, the devil's number or whatever it might be. It's worked its way into popular culture. Uh, and it becomes this big thing. And some people think, Oh, this is some like secret thing. I won't know. I'll accidentally take the mark of the beast. How do I know what the mark of the beast is? And it's this great mystery. Well, I think uh, the context here, if we kind of really dig into it, tells us what this is all about. Again, I think it's important that we first realize this was written, I think, I believe, about the first century and what was going on there, that we have the Roman Empire persecuting Christians, destroying the Jewish temple, which is going to change everything for the, the way that the Jews um, worship. And we have this beast coming up that is actually giving authority to this next beast. His number is 666. I believe the best explanation of where this number comes from is that it's a gemitra, which is sort of a, a numeric code in the ancient world. Because you can't stand up and say, you know... Nero's the problem. Caesar Nero's the problem because then they just come and they kill you. If people actually start following you, that's how you get yourself killed. So we have literature like this in the relative recent history, like Animal Farm, where, you know, you have different nations and stuff like that, and they're represented by animals and all that kind of stuff, because you can't just come out and call out these, these dictators, these people. They're going to come and kill you. And so part of this is, I want to tell you who this is, but I can't just tell you who it is. So there is this system, numeric system, that matches up letters of the alphabet with numbers, called Jamitra. 666, here's how we get 666. So each letter corresponds to a numeric value, and then you add up the numeric values to a certain number. If you take the name Caesar Nero, the emperor of Rome at the time, and you transliterate that into Hebrew, which some of these would be Hebrew-speaking people, Hebrew-reading people, that's kind of their background, and you add up all of those numbers, the number is 666. It's a way of saying this is Caesar Nero. He's the beast. And we can't be complicit. We can't, we can't just give him our allegiance. Now, we have some manuscripts. So in the ancient world, a book like this would be written. It would be passed around. People would start copying it, and it would be copied, 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 and sent to different places, and people would read it. Some of our different manuscripts that are very, very old, go back to this time, have a different number. And the number is 616. You say, oh, what's going on here? If you take the same system, Jamitra, but you, instead of uh, transliterating into Hebrew letters, you take the name Caesar Nero and you transliterate them into the Latin letters and then add them up, they come to 616. So if you're a scribe who's copying this and you're sending it to people who probably know some Hebrew, you might stick 666 on it and leave it and go ahead. At some point, you might be writing to an audience that knows more Latin because that becomes more popular and that's what they read and that's what they know. You might say, I'm not going to write the number in Hebrew because they're never going to get it. I'm going to write in Latin because they're going to realize it. And so you would have a different number referring to the same person. And I think this gives some credibility, this theory, to the fact this is who we're talking about. We're talking about the, emperor, the empire of Rome as represented by Nero wreaking havoc against the Christians and the Jews in the first century. And what was the, the mark of the beast that was attached to the forehead or to the, the, the hand? Well, I don't know. 
and there's different theories, as there are about all these things. Uh, some would say maybe they would go to the market and uh, they would have to put some oil in the scepter, which was an act of worship to the emperor before they could go and do business, and that's a possibility. Others have noticed that, again, for a predominantly uh, Jewish, people have a Jewish background audience here, when you talk about the forehead and the hand, if you know your, your Hebrew scriptures very well, that would make you think of something over and over and over. We talk about things where God says this should be on your forehead and your hand, forehead and your hand. There's tons of passages about it, places like the book of Deuteronomy and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And this is where you are supposed to put the law of God, forehead, hand. Keep it on your forehead, right, beti- right between your eyes, so that it's always before you, always on your mind, right on your hand, so that the intention of your mind worked out in action is in accordance with the law of God. And what we have here, perhaps, is a contrast between predominantly the law of the Roman Empire. This is how you must live. You worship the emperor. You do whatever he tells you to do. Or you have the law of God on your forehead and on your hand. Jesus would go further and say, uh, as the prophet Jeremiah did, on your heart, let it sink in deeply to who you are. Let it change you. And what is it that is the law of God as Jesus would have us uh, interpret that? And make the priority is to love God with all our heart and our mind, our strength, and to love our neighbor as we are. This is the law of God. And in an empire that is ruled by violence and domination and not taking care of those who are weak or are poor, because after all, as they believed, it must mean that the gods gave them their lot in life. They deserved it, or maybe they're lazy, or maybe they're just no good, and so we'll leave them off to their side. It's all about us. What is it that we are called to do? What is it that people of the Lamb are called to do is to put the law of God on our forehead, on our hand, always, to pledge allegiance to the Lamb. We follow Jesus. This is so important in a text like this. As we read a text like this and we read about people who are struggling, people who are disappointed, people who um, just, they long for something better. We read about someone like the beast. And again, there's other ways of reading this and I understand that. But here's the point. There's this great contrast, thematic contrast in the book of Revelation between the beast and the lamb. And there's a choice. Who will you follow ultimately? Who will you follow? Your life will take the shape of who it is that you're following and who tells you how to live in what ways. I think a big thing that we're going to learn, because if you back up to verse 8, we read, um, you know, it talks about those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb. The Lamb is a picture of Jesus, uh, not the beast. Those who follow Jesus need to see the difference. Uh, and where the beast glorifies power over and dominance and violence, the lamb is meek and peaceful. You see the imagery there, not, not a beast, but a lamb, really bringing peace. And the point to me seems to be that you can't beat a beast by being a beast. This is the call back to faithfulness. You can't beat a beast by being a beast. We might look out into the world and we might see things that frustrate us. We might see evil. We might see hurt and pain. We might see people being ignored. We might see uh, violence. We might see all of these kind of things. Well, what are we supposed to do? We, if we're followers of Jesus, or maybe for you, you're thinking of becoming a follower of Jesus or you're investigating that, is we don't follow the beast. We don't just try and become a beast so that we can beat the beast. We become people of the lamb. We live a different way. In other words, we live as part of the 
the kingdom of God, the way that Jesus calls us to live in the midst of our frustrations and challenges and struggles and a world where we can oftentimes see all of the problems. We also see the way that the kingdom is breaking in and is broken in, the hope that Jesus brings in the call to say, you come along and be part of this. You usher in a different kind of kingdom, not the kingdom of the beast, the kingdom of the lamb. You can't beat a beast by being a beast. And so the call is to come back and to follow the lamb. We don't worship the empire. We don't worship the emperor. We don't follow his law. I mean, civil disobedience, this is a very touchy subject. But ultimately, our law is the law of love. That's what guides us. That's how we make things better. That's how we lead our lives. A couple of examples. You go, well, what does that look like? So now Jesus. Jesus dealt with people who lived in this tension because the tension was already there while Jesus was walking the earth, physically speaking, and he was teaching people who were struggling with the fact that there was this Roman Empire that was doing all kinds of evil, and how do we live in that? Let me give you a couple of examples because, again, two of the big things were how do we treat vulnerable people, um, this, this power over versus this love for, um, and how we deal with money is a big thing as well. So uh, think of a couple of examples. One of them is uh, tax collectors. Jesus had a tax collector who became one of his first disciples. Uh, his name was Matthew. Tax collectors in the first century were well known for being Jewish people who benefited from the Roman rule in an unjust way. So uh, the Romans, if they were collecting taxes from the Jews, would like to use Jewish people because then they didn't have to go and do it and be the hated person that would have to go and do it. So they would recruit uh, Jewish people to do them. And they gained the reputation for collecting more taxes than they needed to because they could get rich off the system. Hey, I can skim some off the top and I'll give Rome what they want and I'll keep the rest. And that was sort of the arrangement. So you had some Jewish people who, in light of the corrupt government, the the corrupt empire said, I can take advantage of this and I can benefit from this at other people's expense. One of those people was Zacchaeus. Maybe you remember the story, but Zacchaeus, he then started following Jesus, started learning about Jesus. He invited to his home. He sat there. He realized that his life was uh, morally bankrupt. And this is what he decided, this is what Zacchaeus decided to do. When Jesus took over his life, he said, behold, Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. What was his response to following Jesus? When I realized that I followed Jesus and not Rome, radical generosity to those in need and restorative justice for those who he had wronged. Changed everything. Money is no longer my God. There's vulnerable people out there. I'm going to give half of my stuff to them. I've defrauded people. I'm going to go make it right, and even more so. He fought greed with generosity. And notice, he didn't just say, oh, look at all these bad people in the Roman Empire. He said, I'm starting right here. I've bought into the greed of the empire. Jesus changes my heart. And the law of love says I can give to people in need and I can set things right to the best that I can. Then think of Peter. Peter was a follower of Jesus. Interesting, we noted him before he was executed uh, by, by Rome. Peter was a zealot, we find out. Zealots in the first century, Jewish people, was a group of people who believed that the way we were going to solve our problem with Rome, Rome's going to come fight us, we're going to fight them. So zealots were all about creating an army or armies, and they expected a Messiah that would come and fight the way that all, most Messiahs would say, we're going to come and we're going to fight violence against violence, and we're going to overtake them, we're going to overcome them. They're going to fight us, we're going to fight them. And to them, this happens when Jesus is arrested. 
He's being arrested, and Simon Peter is following Jesus around, having a sword, it says. Uh, this is from John 18, 10. He drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that Father has given me? You can't beat the beast by being the beast. Peter, all along the way, you just got, you got the feeling, I want to fight, I want to fight, I want to fight. And the, Jesus being arrested, he goes, our Messiah can't be arrested, can't be beaten, can't be crucified. Now is time to fight. And Jesus says, put your sword back in. And then Jesus heals a man, one of his enemies. Kind of fits with what Jesus taught us, to love our enemies. It fits with what he taught us about revenge. This revenge is just a cycle, goes around and around and around. We're going to stop that. Shows us the way of the lamb is a different way. And it starts right here with us, with each one of us saying, I follow the lamb. I don't follow the beast. I don't follow dominating people with my power. I don't follow violence. I don't follow greed. I don't follow selfishness. That's not what my life is about. I don't follow the beast. And I think that's the context. The Roman Empire is the context here. But we see these things happening around us. We have to ask ourselves, how are we going to make things better? How do we be part of the kingdom? Well, we pledge allegiance to the Lamb. We can't beat the beast by being the beast. When we see people who are in need, when we see crisis, when we see in our city a housing crisis, when we see out there that people, and it's been a little bit cold if you didn't notice, and like more than a foot of snow has been dumped on our city, and there's people living out in tents in our city. When we see these things, we have to ask ourselves, what's our life about and how do we help? We follow the Lamb. And it's not about power over, it's about love for. It's not about selfishness and greed and dominance. You don't believe me? Read everything that Jesus said. Start with the, bad, the, the Beatitudes. God blesses who? Those who are poor. Those who mourn. Those who are humble. Those who hunger and thirst for justice. Those who are merciful. Those whose hearts are pure. Those who work for peace. Those who are persecuted. Why? Because we don't follow the beast who says we just get stronger at the expense of other people. We follow the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, giving grace and love and providing for his people and saying, rather than fighting everybody, I give myself for the world. And so we don't just say, oh, I believe in some fairy tale way out there, spiritual thing that doesn't affect my life, that I follow Jesus and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. We believe that Jesus calls us to be part of bringing the kingdom, whatever our struggle is, wherever we find ourselves. We pledge allegiance to the Lamb, not to materialism, not to a political party, not to one nation. And listen, all those things have certain really good parts of it. That's awesome. We accept the good parts. But we don't pledge allegiance to anyone or anything but the Lamb. Follow the Lamb. In Romans chapter 5 and in chapter 4, uh, we read, where we read pictures of the beast in Romans, uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we read about uh, the Lamb and we see the difference. The one who would give himself for the world, the one who would sacrifice himself, the one who would, in love, give everybody what they needed, the one who would say that if you want to follow me in the end, if you really want to talk about the end and judgment day, the ones who will be proved to know me are the ones who feed those who are hungry and give a drink to those who are thirsty who would clothe those who are naked and visit those who are in prison, who would care for the most vulnerable around. We get a picture of, of this lamb. Revelation 5, verse 6. And I'm not going to explain this passage. I just want you to listen to it. I want you to pick it in, picture it in your mind and have it contrast the beast. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. (sighs) Okay, I'm going to explain a little bit. (laughs) Lambs that are slain don't stand. Remember the beast? It appeared he had a mortal wound and some people thought he had died and come back. Here's the lamb who had been slain, crucified, gave himself up to forgive the world, to show the world a different way, standing. As though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever it echoes what we read would have read in Revelation chapter 4 where these angelic Creatures cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We worship the Lamb. How do we help? We follow the Lamb. We learn more and more about how Jesus helps people and cares for people and loves for people and sacrifices himself in love for people. And we say, this is the way of the kingdom. Coming into the world of the first century, coming into the world of 2022, Your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray for Jesus. As we close today, we're going to sing another song, and we're going to take communion together. Uh, For those of you at home, if you haven't already, you want to grab a little uh, bite of cracker and and some grape juice or wine, you can participate with us. For those of you who are here in the room, um, there's a a little cup uh, either on the chair in front of you in the little rack underneath, or uh, for those of you in the front, possibly um, behind you or, or just on the ground there, you can find it. And there's two elements. One, again, if you're in the room, there's a clear peel-off on the top and you'll find a wafer there or a cracker, a piece of bread at home. And this is symbolic of the body of Jesus given for us, the lamb who would be slaughtered, who would give us everything that we need to show us that love and love sacrificial is the way forward. And then the juice of the wine underneath that, which is representative of the blood, the forgiveness. This is the way of Jesus, not the way of retribution, the way of forgiveness, the way of peace. It's the way of the Lamb. And so today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to say you don't have to participate in this. This is something for those of us who've already made that decision, and I just invite you to kind of think through some of the things that you've heard or or thought about today. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is our opportunity to remember and reflect on Jesus, on what he has done for us, and what he has done for the world and continues to do for the world. And for us, to pledge allegiance to the Lamb, the Lamb who is slain, standing, the one who ultimately rules, the only one that we worship, the one who shows us love and says, now it's, it's our job 
to reflect that love into the world as we receive it. So we're going to have just uh, two or three minutes of quiet music. And uh, whenever you're ready, I'd invite you to take the body of Christ, which is given for you, the blood of Christ, which is the forgiveness of sins, to eat and to drink and to know that as real as those elements go into your body and become part of you, just that real is the love of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, the lamb who is slain. And together we proclaim that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come again, Lord Jesus.